All right, well, welcome to uh, lesson two of uh, our theology class. Uh, we're focusing, starting today, specifically on the scriptures. Do you remember what the, the theological term for the study of the scriptures is? Bibliology. Yeah. So I'm on page 13. And our first topic is Revelation, not what we call the book of Revelation, but the concept of Revelation. And so, so turns out there are two kinds of Revelation, uh, biblically. One is that the Bible is special Revelation. Special revelation is direct, propositional revelation from God. It is called special for two reasons. First, it is particular, that is, it's not given to everybody, all creation, uh, not at least in its initial uh, delivery. And secondly, it is propositional. In other words, it's given through human language. And so I wanted to look at several of these verses here. Hopefully you've had a chance to uh, look through all of them. And let's read that first one, Second Chronicles 36. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, see how the word of God is coming through human language, right? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he might, so that he sent a proclamation throughout the kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and it describes his proclamation, which had to do with the restoration of, of, um, of Israel back to the land. Um, but that, that just gives a very graphic illustration of the principle that, that, um, God's revelation, in this case, um, in the book of Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah that the Babylonian captivity would last 70 years. And, uh, And this verse is reminding us that God was true to his word. God revealed it to Jeremiah, Jeremiah um, uh, included it in his uh, book that we now call by his name. And um, uh, that revelation is special because God is revealing it through human words. It's propositional. Look at the... um, third one there, 1 Kings 17. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So again, here's um, the case of, of Elijah who, who told this woman something about her welfare, had to do with her um, uh, 
surviving through the drought and in her poverty. Um, and so she knew the word of the Lord was in his mouth. That's propositional, special revelation. And it's true of those first two as well, but let's look at Revelation 111 toward the bottom there, where God said, write in a book what you see. This is him writing, him speaking to John, um, John the Apostle. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and so on, so these, to these seven churches. So God wants to reveal something specifically to those seven churches. Those seven churches were located in what is now Turkey, and God had a special word for them toward the end of the first century. And that's an example of the fact that special revelation is particular. It's going to particular people at a particular time. Now, that's not uh, to say that it's not for everyone. It's just given initially to particular people in a particular circumstance. Right? So it's propositional. It's through human language. And it's particular in its initial delivery, its initial revelation to particular people at particular times. Okay, page 14. The second item here about special revelation is that it has been with man since the beginning and is necessary for man to understand himself and his world properly. Adam could not interpret his world properly without that special revelation. So what special revelation did God give to Adam? Well, there's a couple of examples here from Genesis. That first one, for example, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded him, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And likewise, after he disobeyed that, the next passage here from Genesis 3 is, again, God giving... Uh, specific revelation, even foretelling the future to some extent. And uh, it's God, God's special revelation. It's, it's given to them by word, by human language, and by, uh, or to specific people at a specific time. Okay, well, number three here, in contrast, general revelation discloses God's character to all people. So it's not particular in its, in its what, delivery, uh, initial exposure. Uh, it is not propositional revelation, therefore it cannot be read as a book, but it is revelation nonetheless. Discoveries in the sciences are not general revelation since they are not available to all mankind and do not deal with with the character of God. doesn't mean that they're bad, it's just that they're distinct from, from general revelation. And so let's look at some examples here. In Psalm 19, yeah, Psalm 19, 
David writes, uh, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. How are the heavens telling of the glory of God? So it's part of creation, but how is creation telling a story? It's not through human language, right? But what? So we can observe the creation, and that says something about the creator, right? That there is a creator, that he's um, he must be powerful for all this to exist, and certain other attributes that we would readily conclude from what God has created. So, um, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now listen to this. Day to day pours forth speech. That general revelation, God's creation, is talking to us every day, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, literally. Their voice is not heard. But their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, and so on. Um, So, there's no human language, but there's, like a picture tells a thousand words, right? God's creation tells millions of words. (laughs) about him, about the, even our, you know, when we look at the vastness of, of space and the intricacy of God, all God's creation, what does it tell us about us? Pretty insignificant. You know, people are, are um, uh, even frightened by displays of power that God puts on, you know, even just lightning, right? Um, or the force of a huge waterfall. It's, it's awe-inspiring, and it just kind of puts us in our place. It's God speaking to us through what he has created. Right? Back in uh, the, the text here, so a verse from Romans 1, 19 to 20. This may be familiar to you. Uh, picking it up in the middle of a sentence, but uh, the point is that that which is known about God is evident within them, that is, even with people who deny him. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That's general revelation. It's everybody um, is exposed to it, Everybody receives it, and there's enough there for us to understand that there is a creator, and he's awesome, and we must therefore be accountable to him. Yeah. I understand why, like, discoveries in science are general revelation because they're not, like, widely available, but what makes you say that they don't deal with the character of God? Like, I feel like they deal with the character of God in the same way that other parts of general yeah, yeah, you're, you're probably right that there are aspects of God in terms of his wisdom, his creativity, um, order, yeah, those, those kind of things obviously we understand are just reflections of his nature, yeah, and you can see that in the sciences for sure, but um, like even 
the rest of general revelation, um, even though, like Romans 1 says, everyone who everyone is without excuse because we all have that testimony of creation, it's not a complete picture of God. There is a need for special revelation for God. In addition to what he reveals to everybody, he needs to reveal more about himself, about ourselves, about salvation, a lot of particulars that are needed to be conveyed in, in uh, by way of special revelation. Yeah. So you're right that, that the sciences, if if they're if they're conducted objectively, which these days is kind of rare, there's usually an agenda in in a lot of scientific research and so on. But um, if they're objective as many of the scientists in, in, in years gone by were very objective um, so there can be truth there but but often these days anyway science is a different story anyway can you think of any other examples of general revelation other than creation okay so events sorry so. I just want to say that everybody like they preached it the whole time they were building the ark, they were proclaiming, you know, I think it says that they, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were, they were saying, you know, your judgment is coming, yeah. and nobody, they mocked them and didn't listen to them, right. so then they all, everybody who ever observed that definitely got the message of yeah, I wouldn't call that general revelation. I would call that uh, a propagation of special revelation. God had revealed to Noah. Because they were specific. Yeah, and it was specific, and it was through human language. It was it was a a uh, propagation of the word of God, essentially. Um, but there is a ma- another major, yeah, exactly. That's what I was looking for. God created us with a conscience. What does our conscience do? Moral, right, and wrong. Yes, there's our conscience that God has given us to every human being convinces us that there is a right and a wrong, and also that there is a God and I'm accountable to him. Now, even Romans um, 1 alludes to that. Yeah. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How? Through their conscience. Now, as Romans 1 says, people often suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and their hearts become hardened, uh, or the other way around, they become hardened and suppress the truth. But either way... God has given us a conscience. Now, what does a conscience actually do for us in a practical sense? It accuses when we do. You've heard of a guilty conscience, right? So the the conscience convinces us that we've done wrong, and we don't have to be a Christian. We don't have to be a believer for that to be happening, right? <clears throat> and also, it does what? 
excuses meaning the opposite. You've done what was right, right? And your conscience, you have a good conscience. Um, And so that can happen either before or after you do something. If, If it happens before and your conscience is telling you, no, 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 then it's a warning, right, to help you avoid doing what's wrong. Or if you're in a situation and your conscience is saying, do it, right? You ever have that? That's nudging you to do what is right, even before the fact. And then after the fact, it can either, um, as, as the, the passage says, accuse or excuse. So that conscience is something that every human being was born with. And if um, some people, of course, as, as Romans and elsewhere uh, makes clear, uh, suppress that conscience, they harden the conscience, they can even um, sear that conscience so it's not as responsive as God had created it. Uh, or that conscience can be uh, built up there's a basic conscience there, but part of the training we have in morality of the specifics of what's right and wrong, our conscience tells us that there is right and wrong, but some of the specifics may be uh, not clear without, essentially, special revelation. Right? So, um, you know, I find it interesting that as a believer... The Holy Spirit indwells us. What does he do? He reinforces our conscience. Um, that nudging, that convicting, it's something that's there anyway. That capacity is there. It's God-given. But when the Holy Spirit comes in to our lives, um, that's um, working in a much more spiritual direction, not just a general right and wrong. Um, okay, so basically, when we're thinking of general revelation, we're thinking about creation and conscience, two C's. Okay? And number four here on the bottom of page 14, special revelation interprets the meaning of general revelation. What is the meaning of. Um, you know, the vastness of space or the, the um, intricacies of, of what God has created, the things that we see, the human body and, and uh, all the things that we try to discover in the sciences. What is the meaning of that? Well, we have some general idea of what it means, but the specifics, um, for the specifics, we need special Revelation. Uh, and uh, on the bottom of page 14, we have more extended citation from Psalm 19, which is interesting. If you read Psalm 19, the beginning of it is all about general revelation. We've just read that. But if you continue in um, Psalm 19, uh, I don't have the verse numbers here. But 
right at the bottom of page 14, the testimony, it, it says, uh, uh, its circuit is to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. It's talking about the sun. And then it just goes right into special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, and so on. It's just extolling the special revelation, the word of God, in the context of just having talked about general revelation, and the two work hand in hand. Special revelation helps us to interpret what we see, and even our conscience. And um, it's not the other way around. We don't interpret the word of God based on what we see in the heavens or in nature, creation. It's the other way around. No, it's the other way around. When we look at creation, there's limited information there. It's important information, and it's available to everybody, and we're accountable to it. But what does it tell us about salvation? Nothing directly, right? You need special revelation for that. Um, are we accountable? Yes, because what we ought to, because of our conscience, what we ought to um, understand from, from creation is that there is a God. Creation wouldn't be here if it weren't a creator. Now, of course, that truth is being suppressed these days, right? But um, if there is a creator, the obvious implication of that is we're creatures accountable to him. And so we're without excuse. But special revelation is needed to fill in a lot of the details, answer a lot of the questions. Can you think of aspects of God that are not revealed in general revelation? Something about God we wouldn't even know just by observing general revelation. Holy. It's hard enough to understand that with special revelation. <laughs> but it's, it's, you would understand greatness, probably almighty, but holiness, God's, God's um, moral character probably wouldn't jump out at us, yeah. I'm thinking of deism, where there are people who, yes, we believe there's a God, and we know that he created us and the universe and everything around us, but he doesn't really, he created us and then just... Basically left us for our own. stuff like a toy and then just let us go. Yeah. So special revelation reveals to us how much he loves us, how much he's sacrificed for us, and that he has a purpose and a plan for us, and he's directly involved in our daily lives in every aspect, in every way and cares for us. Amen. So God's love, care, um, you know the word immanence? Uh, when we speak of God's um, transcendence, we think of his being far above us. And we kind of get that message from general revelation. 
but we don't get imminence, his, his closeness to us, his care for us, his interaction with us as individuals, we wouldn't necessarily get from general revelation or his love. Or, and it's all related, his grace. Well, general revelation is for everybody. Special revelation. We're commanded to give it to everybody, but who's going to receive it? Those who God has prepared. Yeah. We're commanded to give it, uh, sow it broadly, right? And God's use of that is to bring conviction, whether it brings repentance or not, but there's conviction. Okay. Secondly, canonicity and completeness of Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired all 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament, equally and completely. By the way, you might not have known that there were 39 books specifically in the Old Testament. How do we know that? Because Old Testament, three, nine letters in each word. Three, nine, 39. You might not have known that right off the bat that there were 27 books in the New Testament. You got three times nine, that's 27. So there you go. That's, that's general revelation, right? I'm trying too hard, I can tell. Okay. Yeah, that, that's... Don't, don't write that down. That's, that's, that's just nonsense, okay? Okay. God inspired all these books equally and completely. No other book besides these 66 belongs in the canon of Scripture. Other writings may be useful in understanding the Bible, but they are not inspired by God. The Apocrypha, specifically, is not the Word of God, even though some groups include these other books in their, in their Bibles. So, what does the word canon mean? It's not, a, it's not C-A-N-N-O-N. It's C-A-N-O-N. Uh, basically, it just means the collection of books that constitute either the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, or essentially the Bible. So, uh, look at that first passage there, uh, Luke 11. Jesus says, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So um, that seems like a rather obscure saying of Jesus, perhaps. But it gives evidence that Jesus recognized that the Old Testament canon was complete. It, it was, and, and that wasn't a controversial topic in his day anyway. But um, it just gives testimony uh, from Jesus himself that the Old Testament canon is complete. 
And then in, sorry. sorry. I was just gonna say, um, like it's not listed here that I'm seeing, um, but also just like combined with other statements, uh, proof that the Old Testament canon is complete and should not be added to when Jesus constantly affirms the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament, but constantly smacks down the Pharisees for trying to add to it. Exactly. Yeah, so places like in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, he says, not one little iota of the law is going to pass away. It's secure, it's, it's all God-given, and it's, it's complete. And, uh, and similarly, in Luke 24, the next passage we have here, now Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is after his resurrection. That all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, does that mean what are the law? What are the what's the law of Moses? What books are those? The first five, the Pentateuch, right? And then he mentions the um, prophets. Not specifically which ones, but the prophets would include all the, the prophets. And the Psalms. So is that the only part of the Old Testament that speaks of him? Actually, when he speaks of um, the prophets, no, when he speaks of the Psalms, what it's referring to there is the sort of middle section that's just essentially writings. So it includes the psalm, the wisdom literature, and all that kind of thing. The, um, uh, the Jews of his day categorized the what we call the Old Testament into those three categories. Uh, the law, the Torah, the uh, Nevim, which is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And the first three letters, T and K, pronounce a word with no vowels that the Jews call Tanakh. And so when you hear them speak of their scriptures, they speak of the Tanakh. And that's including all of what we call the Old Testament. The Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Yeah. Um, where, do, where do historical books fall? In the writings. Jesus is saying all of that points to him. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when Jesus is he's raised from the dead and he's opening the scriptures to them and saying, here, it's pointing. this is what was pointing to me, right? That would have been great. Top of page 16, 2 Peter 3. And Peter's talking here about... Um, attributes of the end times, things that are difficult to understand. And he says in that context, um, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do as they also do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. What's significant here? The Apostle Peter is referring already to some of the writings of Paul as scripture. 
things were widely, certainly, uh, I wouldn't think Peter was the only one who recognized. In fact, he's assuming his readers here also recognize that some of these writings of Paul are actually inspired scripture. Um, and so there's an extent to which the canon of scripture was being recognized almost in real time, uh, but certainly as time went along, it, it became more and more recognized. Okay, and then number two here, the Bible is complete. It contains all revelation necessary for the church in this present age. No new normative revelation is being given to the church today. The church, what, what do we mean by normative? A little bit related to cultural. It means what you should do. Normative is, is directive. It's, it's uh, giving us instructions about what to do. Uh, there's no new normative revelation being given to the church today. The church is to reject any teaching from claims of new revelations. And so, uh, several important passages here, but look at uh, Jude. I said Jude 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. It's Jude verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So, what's he mean by the faith that was delivered? The apostolic teaching, the teaching of Christ, the, 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 the revelation about our um, uh, relationship with God, the means of salvation, the work of Christ, all of that is the... the, the focus and foundation of our faith. And that was revealed once for all, delivered to the saints. There's no expectation of it being added to. It's already been revealed. Okay. Any thoughts, questions so far? It would depend on whether the person I'm speaking to is a believer or an unbeliever. Mm -hmm. If they're an unbeliever, I would say it's interesting to theorize about that, but our responsibility is to deal with what we know. And what we know from general revelation and what God has told us, uh, that's, that's what we're responsible for. If they're a believer... I would tell them basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. That we're accountable for what God's given us. Is it possible that there could have been another or, uh, civilization out there that also became sinful and, um, and followed a very similar kind of history and so on? Yeah, I suppose. Things outside of our knowledge that uh, we can't be dogmatic about. But... Um, Jesus died for us. He came, and we have the testimony of his 
uh, as we're going to see here in a few minutes, uh, he, Jesus himself, his life, his words, were special revelation from God. And um, it doesn't seem consistent with the work of Christ and what we, God has revealed in Scripture that there would be any other civilizations outside our own that would be covered by that or would know about it. But the bottom line is God holds us accountable for what we do know. And um, that's what's important. Yeah. Okay, so I'm on page 17. We've got some supplemental notes, as many of our lessons will, to kind of flesh out some of these things. Um, I mentioned at the top there's some limitations to general revelation. Um, uh, one thing we didn't point out yet is one of the problems with general revelation is we need to interpret it. Now, the problem with that is our interpretive skill is fallen. It's tainted by sin. And so, uh, not only us, but everybody, right? And so, our collectively, our ability to interpret that correctly has been tainted. And we may easily draw the wrong conclusions. And we see that often people do. Um, and it's that's one of the points that Paul makes in Romans 1. So we need to be careful about our interpretive capacity, even of general revelation, let alone special revelation, uh, because all of man uh, is uh, corrupt, essentially. That doesn't mean that we're as evil as we could be. We'll talk about this more when we get to the doctrine of man, but... Um, the point is that every aspect, including our mental capacity and our heart, right? Everything is, is tainted by sin and our ability to interpret even general revelation is um, uh, limited. And so man suppresses the knowledge that he is given. It's a heart problem and so on. All right, I wanted to draw a, a uh, parallel between Christ and Scripture. But before I do, there's a list here in the middle of page 17 that gives examples of various kinds of, well, mechanisms whereby God would uh, convey special revelation. So he's used angels, right, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, dreams and visions, uh, miracles, where he's testifying of his power and his sovereignty and, and this kind of thing. Uh, sometimes an audible voice. How would you like to have been little Samuel? Bing! Samuel. <laughs> uh -huh. um, or an inner voice. Or the Yumim and Thumim. You know what those were? little stones that, uh, I don't know exactly how they worked, but uh, it's like a binary. If there's a yes-no question, it's like flipping a coin. They could figure out what God was trying to tell them. 
Same thing with a lot. When you roll the dice, when you roll the lot, um, there is confidence that God controlled that, and and uh, particularly if they approached it with with that in mind. But then specifically prophets, right? He's speaking um, um, not just yes, no, but he's speaking specific words to specific people, and that was primarily what he did, yeah. I was just going to point out, Lot could almost be included in general revelation, because we see examples like uh, with Jonah, that people who were not Israelites, who had nothing to do with the God of Israel, were still relying on drawing lots to figure out things. Like, they figured out that Jonah was the reason for all everything that was happening on the ship, even though they recognized it wasn't their God, it was his God that was doing this. So... Yeah, that's probably a, a middle ground. Um, so, um, look at the bottom of the page. I find it interesting that the Bible, of course, is called the Word of God, but so is Jesus Christ. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there's a mystery here about both the, the, the nature, the dual nature of Christ and the dual nature of Scripture. So um, the living word, Jesus Christ, is without sin. The written word is without error. Right? There is a biological mystery about how Jesus could be... Um, completely human, become completely human, and yet have existed eternally as part of the Godhead. Um, I don't know about you, but I find that very hard to get my mind around, how it actually works. But that doesn't mean it's not true, it just means it's a mystery. And we know uh, enough about the details, but it's still, uh, we take it on faith, because God has revealed this. Um, but then there's also a theological mystery concerning Scripture because um, there are human authors, and yet ultimately God is the author, and certainly not everything in Scripture was just mere dictation by God. Some of it was, you know, thus says the Lord, say this to so-and-so and whatever, but a lot of Scripture is, is um, very much the writing of human authors who nonetheless are inspired by God to write what he wanted written down, even the very words, even though their personality, their styles, and everything is all is all evident. So there's some mystery about how God was able to inspire the human authors to write not only concepts, but specific words. Um, so... I find that kind of interesting. Flip over to page 18, and you see a little chain of, of uh, uh, the process whereby the mind and will of God are communicated to and affect the mind and actions of man. And so the first step there is God has to reveal. And connected with that is he needs to inspire. We're going to talk more about inspiration, I believe, next week. Uh, 
So those are kind of wrapped up in the first link. God reveals his truth by inspiring the human authors to write what he wants written. Then the third step, which is the second link, how do we know that the right books got into the Bible? And that's this question of canonicity. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. The next one is, how do we know that today's Bible reflects God's original words? And this is the transmission of God's word over generations to generation to generation to generation. Um, and you got, you know, particularly when there weren't photocopiers or printing presses, uh, you got to wonder when things are being handwritten and copied, what's the chance that human error will creep in and make the manuscripts that are available today not the same as what God originally... Well, that's a question of transmission over the, over the years and so on. And probably the greatest example of God's faithfulness in superintending that is the testimony of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where in 1947-48, um, some uh, quite a large number of scrolls were found in multiple caves near Qumran in Israel, whereby if you put them all together, and, and it included not only scripture, but uh, like municipal records and deeds and various things, just important papers. But among them were copies of the scriptures. And everybody understands, and it's very clear to everybody, skeptics and believers alike, that these things dated to around, um, just thinking off the top of my head, something like 200, 300 B.C., so there's a community in that area who were devout Jews and they hid these things in there because they saw the writing on the wall, apparently. And they're about, Israel was um, under the, the thumb of Rome and um, they wanted to keep their important documents hidden and sealed and, and so on. Anyway, if you take, people have, those Dead Sea Scrolls uh, and the portions that are uh, portions of Scripture, and you put them all together. Now, when I say portions of Scripture, it's the Old Testament, right? It precedes Christ. Um, you put them all together, and you get a lot of the complete books of the Old Testament. I think Isaiah is an example of that. Um, but what's missing is very, very little. You can almost put together the entire Old Testament from the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's not the important thing. The important thing is the most recent manuscripts that we had, all of our translations we had up until 1947, were based on manuscripts that dated to from around 900 A.D. So what's the significance? You've got a thousand years earlier documents. So what's the obvious question? How do they line up with the most recent that we had up until this point? Virtually verbatim. There's a few smell, uh, 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 
typos, maybe spelling errors, uh, maybe word swaps, nothing that affects any meaning, whatever. Um, what does that suggest? God superintended not just the revelation and inspiration, but also the transmission over time. And it's a great testimony. It's not just God's sovereignty over that. It's a great testimony to the Jewish scribes who were very meticulous about it because they revered the word of God. Right? Um, God was working through them in this very mechanical transcription process to preserve and transmit his word on a medium that was um, you know, various kinds of parchment that was in the most cases um, enduring but not eternally enduring and so the fact that it was in a very arid atmosphere in canisters that were sealed made it even more enduring. Why do you suppose God did that? So that we would have more confidence that that transcription process he superintended to preserve the scriptures over a long, long period of time. And that wasn't just unique to that period. Right? He was in that process the whole time. Yeah? I was just going to say... Um Dead Sea Scrolls, like I said, was uh, Old Testament. With the New Testament, uh, James White has a lot of debates and sermons and presentations on the transmission of the New Testament and how the fact that it was copied and sent to so many places, there's so many families of copies, actually gives us more confidence that it's accurate because the earliest fragments that we have, I think are from the 2nd century AD, or uh, either late 2nd century or early 3rd, I think. Uh, and those still match up incredibly well with la- with later copies, and it helps get, give us that confidence that this is accurate, and we have more copies of the New Testaments than any other historical document from that time period or earlier. Right. Um, but yeah, he has he goes into a lot of details. Really cool. Yeah, yeah, and there are um, lots of books written on that. They're very accessible. Uh, one. A pair of books that came out in the 70s, I'm thinking, by Josh McDowell, called um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And uh, uh, there's just a lot of evidence to the trustworthiness of the scriptures that we have. Okay. Uh, page. You know, there's one other thing that's interesting about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, You've probably heard that often the prophecies of the Bible, some general, some specific, are criticized because they claim that the prophecy was written after the event happened. Right? Uh, the book of Daniel or Jeremiah or whatever. So that's, that's a pretty cheap shot, just to propose that that was the case. That's why it could be so specific. It was written after the fact, and we're just gullible. Well... Those Dead Sea Scrolls that Jesus said, not about Dead Sea Scrolls, but the the Old Testament, the Tanakh, spoke of him. That was in those caves when he spoke it. And it was the same as the scriptures that the Jews were reading when he spoke it. And so when, after his resurrection, he was opening up the scriptures to his disciples, 
what he was teaching them was already written down in the Dead Sea Scrolls that people discovered in 1947. It wasn't thought up afterwards. It's kind of cool, huh? Okay, top of page 19. Some people would say the Bible contains the Word of God, but it's not it itself the Word of God. That's, that's not true. The neo-Orthodox position is that the Bible becomes the Word of God as we... Um, uh, as things were written down and he kind of blessed it after the fact? No. Uh, rather, the Bible is the word of God. And so uh, the point about inspiration is that it involves divine guidance of the human writers in the choice of the words in the original manuscripts so that they were kept from all error and omission. Okay. So, what about the canon? By the canon of scripture, we mean the collection of writings that have come to be recognized and accepted as God's inspired and authoritative word. A book is canonical only if it has been accepted as part of the canon of scripture. So, there's, there's um, uh, some description of the origin of that word canon, but flip over to page 20. And the main thing I want to draw your attention to in that table at the top is the first line. It's incorrect to assume the church determines what the canon is. That's not the case. Rather, the church discovers the canon. Who determines what the canon is? God. He's the one revealing it, right? And so our role is to discover it, to understand it as for what it is. And so what are some principles involved here in point C? Uh, early church leaders applied five principles, um, some more than others in some cases, to recognize which books were canonical. And so the first question is, is it authoritative? Does it speak for God or from God? You see that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, you might ask, well, do we say something, do we recognize something is the word of God because it says it is? Well, that's not the only test, but would you want to attribute divine origin to something that doesn't affirm that it's from God? No. So it is important that we understand it's from God. And so, similar to that, is it prophetic? Was it written by a man of God or um, a prophet, essentially, recognized as a, a, one of the vehicles God would use to reveal his truth. Is it authentic? Is it consistent with known facts and previous revelation from God? You know, God had um, several tests of a prophet in the Old Testament, and one of those tests was is what this prophet's saying consistent with what I've already been telling you? If it's not, guess what? It's not for me, God says. So that principle is, is, has always been true. Uh, then also, is it dynamic? Does it come with the life-transforming power of God? Does God use it to transform lives? It will. 
And was it received? Was it collected, read, accepted, and used by the people of God, both those to whom it was originally addressed and other true believers? Now, that's something that sort of, uh, it, it stands the test of time, essentially, and you see its, its work in the lives of people. But then uh, the procedures used Item C here, 2C. The Holy Spirit superintended the discovery of the canon, just as he superintended the entire chain through inspiration, transmission, translation, and now superintends our illumination and interpretation and application. So uh, it's not like the deists say that God created things, or even in this case, revealed what he wanted and then just set us loose. God sovereignly has been involved in every step of that process and continues to be, even as we interpret the scriptures and go to him to find truth and apply it to our lives. Um, I've already read from 2 Peter 3 there. But you see on page 21 a table that shows sort of the progress uh, through the early church of when certain books of the New Testament were recognized as being inspired by God, were scripture. And um, that includes both individuals in their writings and teachings, how they quote various passages of it, uh, also various attempts to be systematic, saying what is the canon of scripture we understand at this point, and um, uh, there's mention of uh, various translations, what was included in several translations and church councils as well. Um, so there's some important history there. Okay. Uh, I'm on page 22. So this is the pattern we have for each week where you, in advance, you, you read through the verses and highlight or underline the portions of each verse that relate to that particular topic and uh, work through them. Then in each lesson, there should be two verses or passages that are in bold, and they're good ones to memorize to get the key points of that section. And then there's some interpretation and application questions here as well. So... Hopefully, you've already given three examples each of general revelation, special revelation, as referenced in Scripture. But I wanted to get to our first application question. Why is general revelation not sufficient? Well, it doesn't reveal the um, plan of salvation. Okay, so there are a lot of details left out that sort of require special revelation, right? plan of salvation, which brings out attributes of God that aren't necessarily clear in general revelation. Um, so God took the initiative to, you know, God could have written everything on the sky and, and everybody would be accountable to what he's written, but he chose to work through human language and for us to be involved in spreading it. So General revelation is not sufficient for all things, but why is it nonetheless important? It is 
podcast will help us to understand God uh, better, because obviously we need the Bible to understand him fully, uh, and even then it takes uh, revelation from the Holy Spirit to really understand it. But even just with general revelation, approaching it with with the right background, um, with the right context, we can still see aspects of God's character. We can see that he's intelligent. We can see that, that he's logical. We can see that he's reasoned. We can see, uh, He created us in his image which means that he's creative, he's ju- uh, we can see his justice, and things like that, which do help us get a better picture. The way I've been thinking of it is it's like the difference between seeing an equation in a physics textbook versus actually building a pumpkin cannon. You can look at the equation all you want, and that will help you understand how it works and why it works, but actually seeing the pumpkin cannon is really what makes you understand it, where special revelation, we can read all this stuff, but a lot of the time it's just dry facts until we look at creation and we can see what's being described and it just helps us get a better, round, more rounded picture. Mm-hmm. They certainly work together. Yep. General revelation is not sufficient to accomplish all God wanted to, but nonetheless, Scripture teaches that everyone is accountable anyway, because there's enough in general revelation that holds us accountable. So concerning the canon, the second question there, ultimately... How can we be confident that the canon of the Old and New Testament is correct and that everything in it is God's word and there's no nothing of God's word outside of it? How can we be confident of that? Um, ultimately, um, it boils down to whether we have faith in God and his sovereignty over the whole process. Yeah, it is comforting to know that he is sovereign. It's also helpful that he's given us little insights along the way, like fulfilled prophecies and um, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that kind of tell us what we knew all along, but or extra uh, evidence and, and testimony that he has been faithful all along. So ultimately, it comes down to that. But it's also helpful to know the way in which our forefathers approached trying to discern what God has inspired versus what he has not. And, uh, you know, Paul wrote other letters he referred to in some of his other epistles, like in Corinthians, that didn't make it into the canon. They were just letters and, and so on. And so there was discernment, certainly. It wasn't just everything Paul writes is from God, not at all. Yeah. I think you were also mentioning it, too, in this the Dead Sea Scrolls and how all these documents throughout history um, that are from the scriptures line up. And not only that, but you also have different kinds of authors of the Bible, just thinking about King David, Samuel, and just all these other mixed up people, they all wrote something that was actually cohesive, whereas if you even try to put two people in very similar situations, similar career backgrounds to write the same thing, it becomes very, very, very difficult, and there's going to be a lot of discrepancies between them. But let alone multiple different types of writers, people from kings to shepherds to farmers, all writing scripture together that's all cohesive. Over a long period of time. Over a long period of time, yeah. So, like, how can that be a coincidence? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to delve into that a bit more, I think, next week when we talk about uh, inspiration and evidences for that. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Also, the Bible accurately describes human nature, whereas even non-believers can read the Bible and say, yeah, it's true of human nature. So. And therefore it becomes somewhat convicting. 
yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah. Very good. Well, let's close in prayer.